because the big sweeping historical events, they're not the story. They're the setting. The story is how the people react to those historical events. And we will give them the homeland. The Soviet Union will give Jews the homeland that they have been wanting to have for 5,000 years. Hello, and welcome to History Through Fiction, the podcast. I'm your host, Colin Mustful, and today I am thrilled to be joined by Alina Adams, author of the novel, My Mother's Secret. I don't think it's possible to write anything, whether you're writing historical fiction or anything, with, whether even nonfiction, without the past influencing the present. <laughs> you're young, you'll put up with a lot of mistreatment and that at a certain point you just go, you know what, I'm kind of done with that. I'm going to try something else. Alina Adams is a New York Times best-selling author of soap opera tie-ins, figure skating mysteries, and romance novels. Born in Odessa, USSR, Adams immigrated to the United States at age seven and learned to speak English by watching American soap operas. After receiving her BA and MA in broadcast communications at San Francisco State University, Adams worked in television as a writer and researcher. Years later, she penned the As the World Turns book tie-in, Oakdale Confidential, which became a New York Times bestseller. Adams continued writing and is now a prolific and innovative writer who has authored more than a dozen books, both fiction and nonfiction. Today, I'll be talking to her about her new book, My Mother's Secret, a novel of the Jewish Autonomous Region. Well, let's start with your switch in genres. You're quite a prolific writer known for your soap opera tie-ins, figure skating mysteries, and romance. Uh, why the switch to historical fiction? Well, you know how they say, write what you know. I know a lot of obscure things. I basically, when I first started writing, I started writing when I was 17 years old. And by started writing, I mean sending out manuscripts in order to hope that they would be published. And this was back in the days before email. So you had to print everything out, put it in an envelope, put in a self-addressed stamped envelope so that you were basically paying them to reject you. And you know how they say, write what you know. Well, what did I know at that time in my life? I knew about being a Soviet immigrant. I knew about the Soviet Union, but this was, this was the early 90s. And the feedback that I got from all editors was, Russia doesn't sell, nobody cares. Finally, I got a phone call from an editor at Avon who said to me, I read your manuscript, Russia doesn't sell, nobody cares, but you can clearly write. So how would you like to try writing a Regency romance for me? Because that's what we publish new authors in. So, you know, write what you know. What do I know about Regency England? Nothing. 
What do I know about Jews? I know about Jews. So I snuck some Jews into my Regency romance and it was called The Fictitious Marquis. And in fact, a couple of years ago, it was named the first Jewish own voices by the Romance Writers of America because it was apparently the first time that a Jewish writer had put Jewish characters into a Regency romance. So write what you know. I then worked in figure skating for ABC Sports and ESPN. So when I was asked to write a series of mysteries, write what you know. I wrote a series of figure skating mysteries. Then I worked for two soap operas, As the World Turns and Guiding Light, write what you know. I wrote a tie-in books to those shows featuring the characters. And then when it came to my latest endeavors, we had finally reached a point where I was told, you know, Russia is really hot right now. And I said, I am so shocked. I can't imagine why. So the book that was released two years ago in July of 2020 by HarperCollins, The Nesting Dolls, takes place in the Soviet Union in the 1930s, in the Soviet Union in the 1970s, and in present day Brighton Beach, Brooklyn write what you know. The book that I have coming out in November of 2022, My Mother's Secret, a novel of the Jewish Autonomous Region, takes place in the Soviet Union's uh, Jewish Autonomous Republic, Birabajan, in the 1930s, and in San Francisco, California in the 1980s, which is where I grew up. Write what you know. So while it seems that I've bounced around a lot of genres, and I definitely have bounced around a lot of genres, in the end, it all came down to write what you know. Well, that suddenly makes a lot more sense to hear you explain that process. Um, well, let's go to My Mother's Secret, your forthcoming novel. Um, how is it related to your own family? Can you go into the history of it a little bit more? Well, it came down to this. You know, everybody asked me with the nesting dolls and now with uh, my mother's secret is how much of this story is based on real life. And my answer is, you know how at the beginning of every novel it says no character in this book is related to anyone living or dead. Really, that's my story and I'm sticking with it. That's my official story. But unofficially, I can tell you it's all bits and pieces of things I grew up hearing. I was one of those kids who, you know, when the adults were talking, would quietly creep up to the table, hoping that nobody would notice me. And I would sit there and I would listen to the stories people told. Now, most of my grandparents' generation, and my father was actually born in 1941, my mother was born in 1946, but my grandparents' generation, World War II was in a way the defining um, the defining moment, I guess you can't call it five-year war a moment, but um, it was definitely the defining event of their lives. So I always heard stories about World War II, and I heard stories of what was going on in the 1930s, because prior to World War II, you had Joseph Stalin's Great Terror, where basically anyone could be picked up and arrested at any time with barely a charge and either deported to Siberia or executed on the spot. So it was it was in the air. It was in the ether. Everybody that I knew my entire life growing up were people who had been affected both by the terror of the 1930s, World War II, and then to an extent by the terror of the 1950s, which was Joseph Stalin's next paranoid event. So it's not even a matter of it's based on one particular story. It's based on so many different stories because it was just you couldn't take a breath without it being there because it had affected the life of literally every single person that I knew. 
And how much of your own family story did you sprinkle into this novel? You know, it's interesting. Um, I like to talk about what makes historical fiction really come to life are the smaller details. Because the big sweeping historical facts anyone can look up. It's actually interesting. My husband's the teacher. And he always says that the most valuable things that you learn are the things that you learn yourself. Because the things that you learn in the classroom, pretty much everybody knows. And the things that you learn yourself are your unique selling proposition. And I think it's the same with historical fiction. You know, anyone can look up the date of when the Jewish autonomous region was established. Anyone can look up the date of when World War I began in the Soviet Union and the various battles, you know, Stalingrad, the siege of Leningrad, all of that. But to me, what makes historical fiction really come to life are the little details, the stories that um, are personal. And so sprinkled throughout my mother's secret are the little personal details of people that I either knew um, indirectly or directly. For instance, even a minor thing like the character in My Mother's Secret is named Eleonora after Eleanor Roosevelt because her mother, her Soviet mother, was praying so hard for Franklin Roosevelt to open a second front and take some of the pressure off the, um, the Soviets on the Eastern Front that when um, Roosevelt did open that second front, she named her daughter Eleonora after Eleanor Roosevelt. That was a story of a family that I actually knew. So it was those little personal things because honestly, as a reader, and historical fiction family sagas are my favorite genre. What I really love is seeing characters evolve in the and in the background you have the historical events because the big sweeping historical events they're not the story, they're the setting. The story is how the people react to those historical events. Well, I want to ask more about the characters, but before I do um, let's talk more about this Jewish autonomous region. And I have to admit, so I'm the publisher of the novel and I've read it a dozen times. I just now realized that I've been pronouncing the name of this place wrong in my head every single time. So first, how do you pronounce it? And second, what is it? It's Birabajan. That's, that's the pronunciation of it. It's because it's between two rivers. It's on the border between, well, what was the Soviet Union and China. And it's between two rivers, the Biro River and the Bijan River. So the territory was named Biro Bijan. Basically, what you have in the 1920s is you have Zionism, the movement to return Jews to Israel, which is considered their homeland. Zionism is illegal in the Soviet Union. All forms of nationalism are illegal in the Soviet Union to an extent. I mean, there's a lot of nuances about how it's expressed. Um, and as we're seeing right now, to most of the world, a Russian, a Ukrainian, what's the difference? And in fact, to most of the people who lived there, um, I was born in Odessa. My parents lived their lives until their 30s in Odessa. And as they're constantly saying now, Russians, Ukrainians, they're all so intermixed. How can you possibly even suggest that they're different things? But there's people to whom they're very, very different things, which brings me back to you have the Soviet Union, which is made up of multiple republics. Nationalism is not acknowledged because everyone is just a worker. That's it. And certainly religion is outlawed and not acknowledged. And for the record, Judaism in the Soviet Union was not a religion. It was a nationality. People had internal passports where on the line for nationality, 
it said Jewish. My, as I said, my parents were born in Odessa. My parents were native Russian speakers, but under nationality in their passport, it said Jewish. So Jewish is a nationality um, in the Soviet Union. It, it no longer is, but it was at the time. So we're talking about Zionism as a nationalist movement is illegal. But the Soviet government has a problem. It's got a lot of Jews. Um, and it also has a lot of anti-Semitism, even though anti-Semitism supposedly was also gotten rid of following the Tsars. You know, we talk about the pogroms, which, you know, most people are familiar with Fiddler on the Roof and other things. So supposedly that only happened under the Tsars. You still have violence against Jews. You still have anti-Semitism. So here is a solution. We can create our own Jewish homeland. So forget Israel, forget um, Zionism. We will move all the Jews of the world to this region and we will give them the homeland. The Soviet Union will give Jews the homeland that they have been wanting to have for 5,000 years. It will be under the auspices of the Soviet Union. It will be a socialist state. And the idea is that not only will all the Jews of the Soviet Union move there, but so will all the Jews of the world. And in fact, there were um, South American Jews there. There were Jews from parts of Western Europe. There were American Jews who went there. So there was quite a big push to get everyone to move there. In fact, I was able to find um, library archives at a university where they had a collection of posters that had been designed specifically to both fundraise in the United States, the posters were in English, and to convince people to immigrate. The idea was Israel was never going to happen. That was just an impossibility considering the geopolitics at the time, but the Jews would have their own homeland and it would be given to them by Joseph Stalin. Well, that's incredibly fascinating and surprising that I mean, I don't know how many others out there know about it, but I certainly, it was certainly new to me. Now that you've gone over some of this history, let's get more into the story. And as I said, the characters, um, you've talked about Eleonora, the daughter, um, then there's the mother, Regina. Um, who are these characters and what is the story about them that, that you want to tell? Well, I was fascinated by the idea with the character of Regina is you had these urban educated people. Regina grows up in Moscow. She grows up in a communal apartment with parents who remember the days before the revolution. I, I got a little bit cutesy in that I put her birth date actually on the date of the revolution just to make it symbolic. You know, in books you can get away with things that in real life don't quite work as well. So she was literally born on the day of the Soviet revolution. Her parents who had been relatively well off and living in Moscow before her birth are now living in a communal apartment where they're sharing one room with their teenage daughter and there's other families living in the communal apartment. So her parents remember what life was before and they're very bitter about it. But Regina is an idealist. She is actually someone who, because she meets a character named Cecilia, who is a huge proponent of Birabajan and of basically of the Soviet Union and socialism and all of those things. And she influences Regina from the time she's a child, where Regina, who grows up in Moscow, completely urban, goes to university 
to learn about farm work and decides she's going to be a pioneer. She's going to go and she's going to help build the Jewish autonomous region. So she's an idealist. And that was a character that really fascinated me because you have that throughout history, especially, I mean, there's a, even a Russian expression about how, um, you know, revolutions for the poor are not made by the poor. They're usually made by the educated and the middle class people who romanticize the poor, romanticize farm life, and decide they're going to go charging in and they're going to be pioneers and they're going to build the Jewish autonomy region, especially influenced by the writing. There were actually quite a few Jewish intellectuals, not just from the Soviet Union, but from Germany and from other places who, without ever having visited Birabajan, wrote glowing reports of how there's plenty of farmland and there's fowl and fish and the air is beautiful and everybody lives together in harmony. And, you know, when you're 17, 18 years old, I mean, my kids are currently uh, 23, 19 and 15. So I'm kind of familiar with that demographic. You want a cause. You want to be able to go and be a revolutionary. You want to be a pioneer. You want to bring the world together. There's a reason these movements appeal so much to young people. So I wanted to write. First and foremost, with Regina, I wanted to write about a character who was a true believer and what happened once they got to this place that was going to be paradise on earth. Now, nothing is ever paradise on earth. It doesn't matter what you're talking about, what country or what political system or anything else. Anyone who believes that the place they're going to will be as advertised is inevitably going to be disappointed, some more than others. So this was definitely a topic that I wanted to explore. And then with her daughter, Eleonora, who goes by Lena, on the other hand, is someone who grows up in the United States. She grows up in San Francisco, as I mentioned, when my family immigrated from Odessa in 1977. We actually ended up in San Francisco, California. So I lived in San Francisco from 1977 to 1994. So the, the late 80s, where, where I set this, is actually right, right in my wheelhouse. And she grows up with a mother who doesn't talk about the past. Um, it's interesting because my previous book, The Nesting Dolls, was also about how the past influences the present. I don't think it's possible to write anything, whether you're writing historical fiction or anything, with, whether even nonfiction, without the past influencing the present. But in that case, it was parents who constantly talked about the past, who kind of lived in the past. Here with Lena, we have the opposite. Her mother never talks about it. So she really has no idea about her mother's past or anything else. And then when you had earlier asked about how this ties into my own family, the piece that's actually true is that in 1988, right at the beginning of Perestroika, right when Gorbachev comes to power and suddenly says, former Soviet immigrants can now visit the Soviet Union again. Because at the time that my parents immigrated, it was very clear you were basically, you might as well be going on a one-way mission to Mars. You are never, ever going to be able to come back, not, not without risking arrest or anything else. So in 1988, there's Perestroika, there's Glasnost, and there's suddenly... This announcement, you can come back. My mother and I, 1988, 1988, I was 18. My mother and I did travel back to the Soviet Union. We went to Odessa, where she was from, but we also went to Moscow. And so that piece of the book is based, again, not directly, but influenced by the feelings and the experiences of that particular trip.
Hey historical fiction lovers, this is Colin Mustful, and today I want to tell you about our virtual panel series called What's New in Historical Fiction. If you enjoy hearing from authors on the podcast, I think you'll really enjoy the virtual panel series. Hosted on Crowdcast, What's New in Historical Fiction features historical novelists with new and upcoming titles. As a moderator, I get to ask authors about their books, the inspiration for their work, and about their writing process. Those that attend live can also ask questions of the panelists, while also learning about the newest historical fiction titles. All of the events are recorded and available to watch on replay. To watch previous panels and to register for upcoming panels, just go to crowdcast.io slash history through fiction. That's crowdcast.io slash history through fiction. I hope you'll check it out. Now back to the rest of the interview. Let's talk a little bit more about about your own history, which which you brought up there. Um, so, what what are some of the reasons that your family did immigrate in 1977 from from the Soviet Union to the United States, and what has that experience taught you? I guess. Well, the reasons are plentiful, and you have to keep in mind that I was seven years old. So, to say that I was privy to them in anything but the most surface level, I didn't even know we were leaving. Here's the interesting part: because my parents were afraid that if they told me that I that we were leaving the Soviet Union, I would tell other people, and that could actually get them into trouble. I actually didn't know. I thought we were just moving to another city. My father had actually just finished his PhD, and so the story was he just defended his dissertation, and he had. A job in another city. So I didn't even know we were leaving for good. I didn't understand why my grandparents were so upset on the train station because I didn't realize that, again, to them, we might as well be going on a one-way mission to Mars. And as far as they knew, they might never see us again because we couldn't come back and they didn't know if they would ever be let out and all of that. So to start with, I didn't even know we were leaving the Soviet Union. But the reasons were plentiful. As, as I mentioned earlier, anti-Semitism in the Soviet Union may have officially not existed, or people will insist to you it didn't exist. And you know, when Bernie Sanders visited in 1969 for his honeymoon, he came back and happily reported that there was no anti-Semitism in the Soviet Union. That's not how it was felt. I mean, I was born in 1969, so um, I'm aware of what was going on in that time based on stories from my parents. And let's just say Bernie didn't have an accurate read of the situation. Everything from the fact that there was uh, quotas in universities, that um, every university only wanted to take a certain number of Jewish students. So they had actually developed, and this is um, historically documented, a series of problems called the Jewish problems, which were math and physics equations that were unsolvable. And they were given to Jewish students applying to universities in the Soviet Union so that they could be failed. And so then you didn't have to accept them to the universities. Everything from um, job discrimination to people being verbally attacked on the street or physically attacked on the street. So it wasn't just one reason where suddenly somebody woke up one morning and said, a equals B, so we're going to do C. It was more a buildup of events. And then in the mid-1970s, 
what you had was two American senators, a Senator Jackson and a Senator Vanek, co-sponsored what was known as the Jackson-Vanek Amendment, which tied the export of wheat from the United States to the Soviet Union to allowing persecuted minorities, not just Jews, um, I believe it applied to Baptists and uh, perhaps some other groups as well, to allow them to immigrate. If the Soviet Union did not let a certain number of refugees leave, the United States would not export wheat to them, which is an irony in and of itself. Again, we're back to Ukraine and Russia in that at one point, Ukraine was known as the breadbasket of Europe. It fed most of Europe. It grew enough grain to feed most of Europe. By the time the Soviets were done mismanaging it in the 1970s, they grew so little that they needed to import grain from the United States. Uh, let's talk a little bit more about Ukraine and, and the connections that your novel and history itself has to today. And, and you talked about that a little bit already, about connecting the past to the present. How can you connect your your this story in my mother's secret to what's happening in ukraine and, and what's important about about doing that well here's the thing it's very difficult to talk about a situation that's constantly developing i feel like it's a moving target so to talk about the present day is difficult because new things happen you know every hour but what i can talk historically about and and i touched upon this a little bit is that you have this attempt to make everyone the same. One of the things you had in the Soviet Union, as I mentioned, nationalism wasn't allowed, religion wasn't allowed, lip service was paid to the fact that there were so many different ethnic groups. And, you know, every once in a while you could have a parade and dress in your ethnic costumes and kids learned the language of the republic in which they lived, whether or not they were ethnically of that republic or not. But the fact of the matter is there was this attempt under the Soviet Union to make it so that everyone was the same. So all differences were sort of sanded off. Certainly all differences of opinion were not tolerated. There was this is the one right way to think and everyone needs to think that way. And I think what we're still seeing today with the conflict is the after effects of that. People really don't appreciate it having their unique individuality, whether it's national or ethnic or personal, subsumed into a larger group, which is what Ukraine felt Russia was trying to do even before You know, there were tanks and bombs and everything else. So I don't claim to be an expert on what's going on currently. And as I said, my parents who grew up in Ukraine are saying, why are they even suggesting there's a difference? Practically everyone is intermarried. Practically everyone has someone in their family who is both Russian and Ukrainian. Their cultures are so similar, but that doesn't mean they wish to be run by Russia. On the other hand, Russia's defense has always been that they feel the Ukrainians are um, persecuting ethnic Russians in the Donbass and other regions. So it's this attempt to, I'm not even quite sure what the word would be. It's an attempt to gloss over everything and say we are one people, just like in the days of the Soviet Union, that I think is certainly there. But as I'm going to say, I am not an expert on the political nuances. My, my older son actually studied it much more, uh, much more closely. He, um, he lived in Moldova for a year where he studied Russian as, as part of a State Department program. 
He lived in Moscow for a summer when he was doing an internship. So his understanding of the situation is politically and sort of on, on a global scale much stronger than mine. And he just feels that, um, you know, Russia is, has always wanted to bring back the old Soviet Union. And this is their, uh, their step to doing that. They already have, you know, Belarus is already sort of in lockstep without officially being there. Um, the relationship with the head of Kazakhstan, a former Soviet Republic, is um, also close enough. So I think they just want their empire back. They want the Soviet Union back. Well, I cert certainly appreciate your viewpoint on that. And um, maybe next week we can have your son on the podcast. <laughs> yes, but even then, I think things are changing so quickly. I think unless you're, you're speaking immediately from the area, I, I don't think even people on the ground probably can see the big picture. It's just, it's just a mess. Sure. Well, I want to switch gears. Um, you know, I mentioned your background as, as a writer and you're a very pr prolific author. Um, you also like to try new things and different things. Uh, I wonder for, for novice writers out there, for first-time authors, can you talk about your experience in the publishing process and being, I guess, what I would call a full-time author? Um, what, what, what kind of expectations should people have that are that are entering this industry and, and wanting to be a writer? And, and I guess, what have you learned um, what's gone well, what hasn't gone well, things like that. Well, I started at a very different time. As I mentioned, when I sent out my first book, this would have been the early 90s, where still a lot of the, first of all, it wasn't the big five. There were a lot more major publishing houses that were independent. They hadn't all been um, concentrated into the big five. Um, also, people were reading from the slush pile. My first manuscript got pulled out, as I said, of the slush pile. And then I actually sold my first two books without an agent. Of course, afterwards, when I got an agent, she read my contracts and she said, um, do you want to know all the ways in which you've been screwed over? So I, I accept that. But it was a very different time. I think now, if you want to go into the big five, you, you have to have an agent that's not not even really debatable anymore. Um, but on the other hand, there's all sorts of other opportunities. And I've pretty much done everything. I've done paperback originals with Berkeley. I've done hardbacks with uh, HarperCollins and Simon and Schuster. I've independently published some nonfiction books because I knew exactly where my audience was actually better than I think a major publisher would have because it's something I write a lot about education. So I already had a following and a targeted audience. And now what I'm trying with my mother's secret, a novel of the Jewish autonomous region is a micro publisher, because one of the things I did find that when I was um, working with a large publisher is, you know, you're just one of literally hundreds of titles that they're putting out. And there's definitely benefits of having a big house behind you. But also, unless you're Stephen King, unless you're J.K. Rowling, um, unless you're Danielle Steele, basically, unless you're someone who doesn't need it, the uh, the marketing support is just not going to be there in a way that a micro publisher is working with you on your title and the conversation that we're having right now. And while I am a full-time writer, I really want to stress that I'm not a full-time writer in one genre. Yes, I write novels. Um, my Mother's Secret, a novel of the Jewish Autonomous Region, is my 18th published title. But as I mentioned, I've also written nonfiction titles, not just on education. I've written nonfiction titles in figure skating. Remember what we started with? Write what you know. So I wrote about that. Um, I also write a column about education. I write a soap opera column. 
I am a full-time writer, but I basically have three or four regular gigs. So I'm a freelance writer. And the main piece of advice that I give aspiring freelance writers is understand this. You're going to spend a third of your time looking for work, a third of your time doing the work, and a third of your time hounding people to get paid for the work. So a full-time writer means that two-thirds of the time you're not actually writing. And outside of that, and I know you can't go more than 100%, but this is the reason I'm a writer. That's why my husband is a math and physics teacher and an engineer, is that the rest of the time you're doing publicity because that is such a huge part of the writing process now. It's the old, you know, if a tree falls in the forest and nobody hears it, does it make a sound? If you write something and nobody reads it, um, I'm not talking about ego gratification. I'm talking about basic things like if you write a column and nobody clicks on your column, nobody will pay you for that column. If you write a book and nobody buys it, nobody will pay you for your next book. So marketing, this isn't just for ego gratification. It's not even just for the money per se. It's for the ability to continue doing it. Well, those are all very good points. And, and I love how you articulated them in a way that's easy to understand um, because I think expectations for you know, authors getting into it, it's, it's hard. It's hard to comprehend, but it's, it's good to hear you um, define them that way. Um, let's go back just a little bit. Um, and I don't want this to be self-promotion, but I, I do want to highlight your switch from the major press to a micro press um, can you, cause most people looking at it from outside think that that's the ultimate goal is to be an agent and author, um, published by a major press. So can you talk about a little bit more about taking that, what, what some might call a step back and, and doing it a different way? Well, it came down to what was I really trying to achieve? Am I going to pretend that there isn't more money? in big five publishing is the advanced larger. Of course it is. But as I said, once that check has cleared and once you get some editorial guidance, I mean, I'm not saying that I didn't get editorial guidance. My manuscript for the nesting dolls was certainly edited and a lovely cover was designed. I think the cover artist did a good job. The fact is it was then tossed out into the world to fend for itself. And again, the publicist did exactly what she was supposed to do. I don't mean to suggest by any stretch of the imagination that I was mistreated in any way. The publicist wrote the press release. The publicist sent out the press release. Whenever I made contact with either a blogger or a reviewer or a writer for a newspaper, she got them the press materials right away. She got them the review copy right away. She got them photographs and everything right away. She did exactly what she was supposed to do. The editor did exactly what she was supposed to do. My agent did exactly what she was supposed to do, but I was just one face in a very large crowd and my book did not become a bestseller. So very quickly interest was lost in it because they need to move on because they need to move on to the next book that they hope will be a bestseller. What I'm experimenting with working with a micro press is to see if working with a publisher where I'm not one of literally thousands 
might be more beneficial. And again, as I said, it's not about the money. I do not expect that I will make as much money um, with a small press as I did with a major press, whether it was a hardback publication or even some of my paperback originals. I did romance novels and, and the figure skating mysteries were all paperback originals. It's not really about that. It's about the experience. It's about the process. You know, people are supposed to hide their age, but since I already told you what year I immigrated and what year I was born in, I might as well just go ahead and say, you know, I'm 52 years old and I'm at a point in my life where the experience um, and having a pleasant experience is, is extremely important. It's not just about a dollar sign. So I am just very excited to see what the process will be like working with a publisher where I am the lead title for November and where I'm not just sort of a cog in a machine. So it's all about life and it's all about having experiences and it's all about having pleasant experiences. Cause you know, when you're young, you'll put up with a lot of mistreatment and that at a certain point you just go, you know what, I'm kind of done with that. I'm going to try something else. Well, um, I'm so glad you did. Uh, it's been a pleasant experience on my end as a publisher and um, I hope it continues that way moving forward. I certainly appreciate all the wisdom and, that you've been able to bring to this press. Uh, so what are you working on next and what are your goals moving forward? Well, first of all, a big chunk of my time, as I mentioned, is taken up with PR. I'm definitely trying to get the word about the book out there. I love speaking to book clubs, um, you know, starting with the nesting dolls in 2020. I did about two or three book clubs a month, which is a very pleasant experience. And I've, I'm doing a lot of that. I'm reaching out to people who want to write features about the book. And I'm working on my next book, which, again, write what you know takes place in the Soviet Union, but it takes place during a different time period. It takes place in 1957 when there was a youth festival, because we had just talked about Stalin and his paranoia. After Stalin, Nikita Khrushchev comes to power, and like a precursor to Gorbachev, he thinks he's going to uh, try to change things. He's going to make things more open. And one of the things he does is a massive international youth festival in Moscow in 1957, where delegates from around the world, including an American delegation, arrive in Moscow. And that, again, is the background. As I said, history is never the plot. History is the background to the story that I want to tell. Well, Alina, uh, thank you so much for joining me. And congratulations on your newest book, My Mother's Secret. And I really look forward to uh, seeing the success of the novel. Thank you so much for having me, Colin. Thanks.